Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the spring of 2005, acclaimed environmental photographer James Balog headed to the Arctic on assignment for the National Geographic. The goal was to capture images to help tell the story of the Earth's changing climate. Even with a scientific upbringing, Balog had been a skeptic about climate change, but that first trip north opened his eyes to the biggest story in human history, sparked a challenge within him that would put his career and his very well-being at risk. The documentary film Chasing Ice is the story of one man's mission to change the tide of history by gathering undeniable evidence of our changing planet. Within months of that first trip to Iceland, uh, the photographer conceived the boldest expedition of his life, the Extreme Ice Survey. With a band of young adventurers, uh, Balog began deploying revolutionary time-lapse cameras across the brutal Arctic to capture a multi-year record of the world's changing glaciers. And we're uh, happy to welcome into the studios today James Balog. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Good morning. James Balog is on the campus of Utah State University to give a lecture this evening. That'll be at 7 o'clock in the USU Kane Performance Hall. And that is uh, part of USU's Year of Water. And uh, we'll be hearing uh, clips from the film on the program today and invite people, if you're going to be in the Logan area, to come to this uh, free event this evening at 7 o'clock to hear James uh, Balog. So as I understand it from the film, uh, you set out to be, you studied as a geomorphologist, you studied geology. Yeah, when I was a grad student at the University of Colorado, I studied uh, the, the science of how nature uh, shapes the landscape, how these sculptures that we see out there, whether it's in the canyons of Utah or the mountains uh, or, uh, or river valleys, how all of that came to be through the uh, forces of natural process. Then you decided you didn't, didn't want to live the life of a scientist. Well, I wasn't cut out for statistics, and I could yeah. see even back then that things were going towards statistical analysis, and, and I'm, not a, I'm not a statistician. Right. So I wanted to, I wanted to work with photography, which mm. I had had a very serious uh, advanced amateur interest in. I thought mm. photography would be a good way to, to look at nature and to give me a chance to explore the world. I've had a charmed life. I mean, the places I've gotten to go and the things I've gotten to experience are just amazing because of photography. Yeah. And a uh, certain point here, as we referenced in the beginning, uh, you got this assignment from National Geographic that, that turned into, I think, one of the uh, best-selling issues of, you know, of, of several years. Yeah, it actually started out with an assignment from the New Yorker magazine, oh, and I see. then it turned into a National Geographic project. <clears throat> and by the end of the editing process on the, on the Geographic's work, uh, I cooked up this idea for putting out time-lapse cameras and going back on a multi-year repeat basis to look at how these landscapes were changing. Well, let's hear the trailer from the film now. Get us into the, the, uh, the film, which uh, features uh, photographer James Balak. I'm on the phone with Jim on one of our regular check-ins. Like, Jim, nothing's happening. It's starting, Adam, I think. Adam, it's starting. Right? Look at that. It all started in Iceland. I think I'm so certain to get wet, I'll take my boots off. I never imagined that you could see glaciers this big disappearing in such a short time. There's a powerful piece of history that's unfolding in these pictures, and I have to go back. The initial goal was to put out 25 cameras for three years, shoot every hour as long as it was daylight, that would show you how the landscape was changing. Oh, this is the way to travel, my friend. Putting really delicate electronics in the harshest conditions on the planet. It's not the nicest environment for technology. I do not want to go any lower than this. It's just bottomless. I'm going out here on this broken fin, and I assume it won't collapse. Every once in a while, you get the same. What were you thinking? Maybe that office job wasn't so bad. This thing is loose. Rock, it's not working. God, all of that obsession means nothing if it doesn't work. Just be careful. Don't get too close to the edge, all right? This is terrifying. This knee has had two surgeries, and it really could use a third. He goes to that point where he can't anymore, and sometimes he's going further. We have low operation engine number two. This is big stuff. <laughs> 
happening right now. Okay, onward. the memory of the landscape. That landscape is gone. It may never be seen again in the history of civilization, and it's stored right here. There's the trailer from the award-winning film Chasing Ice, which features photographer James Balog. Uh, he uh, founded the Extreme Ice Survey. So this is a pretty ambitious project, and you could hear the dangers involved in setting these 25 cameras up. Where did you set the cameras up? That first year, 2007, uh, they, they were deployed in uh, Greenland, Iceland, uh, Montana, Alaska, and I guess, I guess that's it. Yeah, yeah. And, and we had some sites uh, right from the beginning that we were visiting in, uh, in Bolivia periodically in the Andes. And this was to, uh, to track glaciers? Yeah, right? the idea was, was this. Um, as the climate warms and or precipitation patterns change, uh, the glaciers recede. Uh, that's a well-demonstrated physical fact. It's, you know, you, you, every human being understands that from the time they're about six months old. You know, mom puts an ice cube in your hand, the heat of your body melts the ice, the ice goes away. You know, uh, at, at a much grander level, that's what's going on with the glaciers. So as the climate changes, the glaciers see that for us. They respond to the regional uh, air and moisture conditions around them. So I thought, well, let's, let's watch how they're changing uh, on a short-term basis. You know, the science and some of the other uh, sequences of photography seem to have been telling a story about how ice was changing over decades, if not, you know, multiple centuries, if not multiple millennia as well. And I saw this first glacier in Iceland in uh, 05 and 06, and that, that was changing in a matter of months. So I thought, well, if that's changing over such a short time span, that says something different to the human psyche than decades and centuries worth of change. That, that's, a, that's a time frame you can grasp in your heart and your mind. You know, you remember where you were taking... Uh, little Susie and Johnny for soccer practice in the spring. And when you can show people a picture of what's disappeared in October, they get that. That's, mm -hmm. that's in your human time frame. So that's what I wanted to express. And you, you, you say you went into this a skeptic, you, that you thought humans can't possibly be causing change on this scale. Yeah, yeah. I, um, look, I've been around a lot of <clears throat> environmental issues for my, my whole adult life. And as the climate change story was, uh, was gathering steam over the 70s and 80s, I was involved with, with some other environmental subjects in, in a deep and passionate way with endangered wildlife and with deforestation and, uh, and other issues. And I thought, you know, geez, it just seems like there's another uh, eco-crisis that somebody's beating the table about it. about every two years there's a new one and my first reflex was oh god this is just another kind of activist cause that's being that's being uh, perhaps exaggerated um, but more importantly i thought that the story was about computer modeling and statistics and uh, I, uh, I i i i know that computer models are only as good as the data you put into them and way back when uh, the computer modeling of these th this kind of subject was pretty sketchy. Now it's very, very, very good. But back in the, let's say, 80s, it was much sketchier. And, but m even more importantly, I had sort of this built-in human resistance to recognizing the possibility that the combined weight of our 7 billion people species, uh, 7 billion individuals of our species, could actually change the basic physics and chemistry of this giant planet. I, I just didn't think that was possible. So I, for those reasons, I dismissed climate change until I had an opportunity about uh, 20 years ago to start looking more seriously 
at the knowledge that had been collected by the scientific community, and it opened my eyes to the fact that indeed this was real. It was not mm. about computers, and it was not about belief and projection and all the rest of it. It was a concrete physical fact. Mm. There was a phrase that uh, struck me, and we heard it in the trailer. Um, there's a scene where you're, and we're skipping ahead a, a in the story a little bit here, but I want to bring it up here. Um, you, you, you take out the memory chip from the, from the camera, you hold it up and, and speaking of the recession of the, uh, the, you know, the retreat of the glacier, you say, this is the memory of the landscape. So it's, it's right here that that glacier's, that part of the glacier's gone. It's only on that memory chip. Yeah, that, that was, uh, that was a moment of genuine revelation. That had never occurred to me before. I had never experienced that before. The cameraman caught that live as the thought kind of came blasting into my head. We had been at that glacier uh, a couple of months before, and now we're coming back for the first time to retrieve the the digital record that was stored on the camera. And I pulled that little you know one-inch square thing out of the back of the camera. It was like this lightning bolt hit my head. My goodness okay, what's happened to this glacier in the past couple of months, the only record we have of it is here in this digital memory. Mm -hmm. And that was like magic. I had never never really appreciated how powerful photography was as a memory preservation device as I did at that moment. And of course you hear about that in, in school and in reading that yes, photography is good for preserving memory. Okay, so what? Uh, we, we do that snapshots of our families and so on, but the, the uh, memory-preserving capability of photography is so much more profound and existentially broad than just family snapshots, mm. and, and that's what it did for me right then and there. It's like history has passed in the preceding two months, and this big feature of the landscape is gone. And now the camera has held it for us. And here it is. That's the last surviving record of that landscape. Mm. Let's hear clip number two here. This, this, talks, this will continue this discussion of glacier photography uh, comparing to portraits. This really is a portrait of, of the landscape. Yeah, it's sort of like doing a portrait of, of people. You know, uh, Richard Avedon and Irving Penn spent their entire careers doing portraits of faces essentially and found endless variation and endless beauty and endless magic in those faces and for me that's the same thing as what's going on here you know you feel the this tension between this huge enduring power of these glaciers and their fragility you know they came from a great and impassive place and now they're just they're crumbling into these tiny little blocks of ice going off into the ocean. It's crazy. My first trip to Greenland, we were setting up one of the cameras at Store Glacier. When we got there, we saw this really bizarre looking peninsula just kind of perched out at the front of this, the calving face of the glacier where the glacier ends. This thing is gonna break off all summer long, man. Look at this. Those peninsulas are, are just a matter of days, at, the, at most of a couple of weeks, but. It was huge. It was five football fields long, 1,500 feet long, and about 300 feet above the surface of the water. As we're setting up the cameras, we also set up a video camera and had it pointed right there at that peninsula, and we just, we just had it rolling, just in case. somehow, fortunately, captured an event that seldom is caught on film. This is really big stuff happening right under our noses right now. 
But I feel like time is clicking, you know, and we need to get these cameras out here. So that's uh, James Balog, uh, and that's in the film Chasing Ice, uh, which uh, chronicles James Balog's uh, extreme ice survey, whereby they put uh, cameras out in various uh, places, um, Iceland, Greenland, Alaska, Montana, and uh, recorded the retreat of the glaciers. So uh, first of all, the, the, you hear the sound of the calving glacier. It's, it, it gives you a sense of the massive scale. Yeah, it, it's it's huge. These are big apocalyptic events. There's an enormous amount of sound, and frankly, we, if we had had uh, some different equipment, we would have had an even more resonant uh, record of, of of the way some of these things sounded. But it still is it's intense. It's like fighter jets uh, zooming over the fjord over your head. It's it it's quite loud, quite noisy. And before I forget, I want to mention that uh, Chasing Ice is uh, is watchable on Netflix and okay. on iTunes, and right. it shows up episodically on the National Geographic channel. But Netflix is the best way uh, to watch it at good resolution. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very, very, very exciting to be out in these places. These are spectacular, fabulous, amazing landscapes. And since the film was made, We've deployed cameras in the uh, Austrian Alps, uh, in Antarctica, uh, and on South Georgia, this uh, remote island east of Argentina out in the South Atlantic in some incredibly spectacular places. And as we uh, sit here today, we have 41 cameras out there clicking away every half hour around the clock as long as it's daylight. Mm. And in that clip, you said that you feel like the clock is ticking. And part of that, I, I get the feeling... From the film that uh, it's you want to get the word out to people you, you you give these presentations like the one you're giving tonight yeah there's a sense of urgency you know this is um, you know I have to admit that what I, I started uh, looking at this field in 2005 10 years ago and at the time 2005 six seven people were talking about climate change is this this beast that's lumbering up over the horizon and boy it's going to be a really big deal in 2040, 60, 80, the year 2100, you know, this is something we have to start getting uh, prepared for on behalf of those people. And since about 2007, the whole psychological and physical context has changed. And suddenly the light bulbs are going off uh, all over the world and people's minds saying, my gosh, this isn't something for decades out. This is right now. This is urgent. This is happening now. And I was aware of that from the standpoint of the ice, that the retreat is happening now. This is not something for 2050. Or, uh, this, this is happening at the moment. Mm. So I need to get on it and get these pictures in the can because whatever exists on the ground in April is not going to be there in October. Mm. I need to do it now. And you said before, we're, we're used to thinking of these things in geologic terms, you know, it's of, of eons, millennia, at least thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, and, we... And, um, and this is April to, you know, this six months time. You, you come back and... That's right. And the glacier is retreated. And sometimes it's even in days. It's not even in weeks or months. Yeah, there's, there's a basic um, human tendency because of the fact that our lives are relatively short, on average, you know, 75 or 80 years in, in the United States, and the expanse of Earth time is so enormous, you think that, oh, in my little years, I can't see what's going on. You know, there can't be that much action going on during my years. But in fact, one of the great uh, revelations of modern Earth science is that a lot of these changes, and it's not just about glaciers, but a lot of very important changes happen in these, in these very fast pulses of activity right around us. So things can happen very quickly in just a decade of your life or just a few years of your life. Um, and in a very specific way, in the ice sciences, this is called the, the study of the cryosphere, C-R-Y-O, sphere, uh, in, in the world of ice science, it's been realized with increasing intensity over the past years and decades that some of these big climate swings have happened in a matter of a very few years in the past. These changes from one state of the ice age to a much warmer state or from a warmer state into a colder state, 
These things don't necessarily happen over centuries worth of slow incremental change. They can happen in a matter of a few years, and you have this profound change of state in the natural system in the basically uh, the blink of an eye. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, more, much more to talk about. Um, we're, we're hearing clips from the film Chasing Ice, which uh, features uh, photographer James Baylog and his extreme ice survey. Uh, he'll be talking about this and um, I assume showing showing pictures and yeah I'll, uh, uh, I'll be talking about it tonight and showing quite a lot of pictures including that trailer from the film but mostly relating firsthand accounts of my personal experiences out there looking at the ice yeah so we have James Wilog in studio today and uh, he is on the campus of Utah State University for a lecture tonight seven o'clock in the USU Kane performance hall that uh, lecture is free and open to the public. Uh, and that's part of USU's 2015 Year of Water. We'll hear more clips from the film. We'll talk more about retreating glaciers, what that means, uh, and uh, talk about climate change as well. More following the break. Did you know that sensory motor learning is innate in humans? Teachers who incorporate movement strategies reach a greater percentage of the learners. Did you know that is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services? More at cehs.usu.edu. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, photographer James Baylog. He's had many assignments. Uh, one assignment in particular, uh, really, uh, he says he fell in love with ice. Talk about that. And uh, led to a, a big project. It's called the Extreme Ice Survey. Uh, now you say, James Baylog, 41 cameras are around the world. Is it? Um, and uh, these are clicking off photographs every so often. Every half hour of um, daylight, yep. Uh, of glaciers around the around the world, and this is uh, and dramatic uh, pictures, uh, times lapse photography. You can you can see the retreat of the glaciers, and uh, James Baylog's uh, purpose. Well, your purpose there is to I guess conclusively prove climate change. What is your purpose? I I, I didn't set out to prove anything. I just wanted to uh, create a visual record. You know, I'm a, uh, though there's a, there's a science dimension to what I do, fundamentally I'm a visual artist and I wanted to reflect how the world around me was changing through these, uh, this art form that I, that I knew how to do. So I wanted to represent that. And frankly, when we started the project, we really had no idea uh, what we we're going to see. I, I mean, literally, my best guess was that in the first three years, we might see a little bit of change. Mm -hmm. And then after some of the cameras had been out just for a matter of a couple months, we saw huge amounts of ice disappearing. It was really, truly a shock. We mm -hmm. really didn't expect that to happen, nor did any of our funders, nor did any of the scientists. It was really, truly an eye-popping eye surprise. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation. I uh, hope that you will with uh, your question or comment for James Baylog. The number, toll-free number, is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us on our email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. The event is on the Utah State University campus tonight. James Baylog will be giving a lecture uh, showing uh, photographs. Um, and that is in the USU Kane Performance Hall, 7 o'clock uh, tonight. We're hearing clips from the film Chasing Ice, which chronicles uh, James Baylog's extreme ice uh, uh, survey. So you, uh, you said er early in the film you said you fell in love with ice. Tell me about that. 
Well, you know, I've been a I've been a technical climber and alpinist for for a good bit of my adult life. I'm getting a bit too old. My knees can't take a, a lot of the abuse that I used to put the system through. But uh, I've been climbing uh, icicles since uh, since it was a very very radical and new sport back in the uh, the early '70s. Uh, a lot of big rock cliffs. Um, and uh, so I've been around these steep and wild places, and I always loved to be on glaciers. It's a, the colors are incredibly beautiful, at least in some places. Some places it's kind of ugly. It looks like a tailings pile out of mine. Uh, but in other places, you get this amazing light that comes through the ice and turns the ice into these uh, fabulous uh, sapphire, emerald colors, sometimes black uh, the shapes are amazing. The shapes are always changing, and I'll and I'll reflect some of that in the in the show tonight. You'll see a, a lot more of that than you actually see in the film, um, and also the the solitude and remoteness and tranquility and serenity of these these places where ice lives. I've always found that very uplifting for me internally. I, I love the quiet. Uh, especially a place like the Antarctic, uh, the big Antarctic glaciers or the Greenland ice sheet. Um, you know, you talk about serenity, you know, it's just like the Utah desert on a really quiet spring night. You know, you're down in the canyons. There's no electromagnetic stuff coming your way. There's no cell phones going off. It's just stars and rock and tranquility. It's the same thing out on the ice. Let's hear another clip from the film Chasing Ice. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, let's see, number one. This is clip number one. There was a real sense of the glacier just coming to an end and like this old, decrepit man just, you know, falling into the earth and dying. It was very evocative, very emotional. As a guy who's been mountaineering for basically my whole adult life, uh, someone who's trained in uh, earth sciences, I never imagined that you could see features this big disappearing in such a short period of time. But when I did, when I saw that, I realized, my God, there's a powerful piece of history that's unfolding in these pictures, and I have to go back to those same spots. So I set up a whole bunch of camera positions around that glacier where I would just go back and shoot a single frame, you know, one in April, one in October, and we would just see how the glacier changed in six months. Right there where Bob is, Stan, right there. That's exactly where the ice was, right there. Right over. Uh, correct. That glacier had changed so much that, I'm not kidding, for like three hours we stood there looking at the prints of six months ago, looking at the glacier going, we must be wrong, we can't be in the right places. That's, uh, that's James Balog from the film uh, Chasing Ice. Uh, so give me, uh, give me a sense of the scale of, the, of, the, of the, how, how far these uh, glaciers are, are retreating. Well, you know, it, it, it varies. It, uh, they're individual creatures. They behave in different ways at different times in different regions. Um, and it's not uniform, not by a long shot. Um, in a place like Greenland, some of the big uh, <clears throat> glaciers that come out of the interior and drop in, in through these fjords into the ocean, they can lose uh, billions of tons of ice in a matter of an hour or two if you have a big break-off event, which is known as a calving. Um, for example, in, in the film, there's uh, one, of, one of these calving events that breaks off a block of ice that's basically like the lower tip of Manhattan, and it's um, a couple thousand feet thick, this block of ice that just breaks off in sequence and rolls over and collapses and turns into icebergs in the ocean. In other cases, uh, a glacier that terminates on land, you might see it retreat uh, a few dozen yards or a few hundred yards in a season, which is a lot of retreat. It, it, as you sit here in, the, des in, the, in the, the valley of Logan, Utah, you go a few hundred yards, it's not a big deal. But when you see the volume of ice that's involved with a retreat, 
even of, the, of that scale, it's, uh, it's quite shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, I just came back a, a week and a half ago from the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, where, <clears throat> as we all know from the famous Hemingway novel, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, um, that mountain had been coated with ice in the first part of the 20th century. The whole upper part was, a, was an ice cap, and uh, it was fabled throughout um, Africa and European and American literature because of that. And now it's rapidly deglaciating. Uh, a good bit of the ice is gone. The majority of the ice actually is gone. And I wanted to see what that ice looked like and felt like because the ice on the top of Kilimanjaro has shapes that are unlike the shapes of ice anywhere else. Um, and so I, I wanted to make my own little visual record of that and touch that stuff while it still existed and touch it as part of this project. Mm. So you, you, were, you went up and touched it? I went up and touched it, absolutely. Mm. You know, it's up at uh, almost 19,000 feet in the summit crater and uh, took us um, about uh, 10 days to acclimatize and get up there and be in a position so that we could camp successfully at, uh, well, our campsite was at 18,800 feet. And you don't just run up there from sea level and feel good. If you Mm -hmm. did, you'd probably get pulmonary edema and Mm -hmm. die. So we had to acclimatize, get accustomed to it, get up there. And um, there were some extraordinary pictures that came out of that. And actually, the best of those pictures I'm going to show tonight in the slideshow, it will be the first public screening of that particular shot, which I happen to be very, very proud of. Mm. Talking with James Baylog, a photographer. He is the founder of the Extreme Ice Survey, and uh, he'll be giving that uh, lecture tonight in the USU Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus, 7 o'clock tonight. That's free and open uh, to the public. This, this, uh, you, can, you can pair this uh, competing, the retreating glacier in that previous clip to a dying man. You, you know, you're going up Kilimanjaro to touch this glacier, which may not be with us uh, much longer. It has a feeling of elegy. I don't know. Is it, uh, there's, there's a sadness, tinge of sadness. Well, there certainly is. I, I can't deny it. There's a tinge of, a tinge of sadness, melancholia to all of this. Um, and yet it's also a recognition of natural process. You know, we, we humans are so anchored in our in our existences, uh, and we struggle, especially in Western society, struggle with the concept of dying and not being here. Um, and, and to the extent that there's sadness in, in the pictures, it's connected with that. But the, you know, the great existential truth we all have to somehow learn is that indeed we are mortal and that our deaths are part of our lives. And as sad as not being here or with our families might be, uh, mortality is, is part of the job that we have as, as, uh, as people. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm bearing witness to mortality in these pictures, but on a, in a deeper way, I, I've come to realize I'm bearing witness to time. I'm marking the flow of historic time in these pictures. And that's, um, that's something that never stops. It's been going on on this earth for four, four billion plus years, and time is always marching on, and, and I'm taking a slice out of that current of, uh, current, I'm mixing my metaphors, I'm taking a piece, uh, I'm, I'm taking some molecules out of the current of time and looking at them and marking what there is now that there won't be in the future. Let's take another break, and we'll come back with James Baylog. He's a award-winning photographer, and uh, his his big project is the Extreme Ice Survey, and that's chronicled in the film Chasing Ice, from which we're hearing clips uh, today. James Baylog will be uh, giving a presentation this evening in the USU Kane Performance Hall at 7 p.m. This is part of USU's 2015 Year of Water. More following the break. This is Science by the Slice. Adventurous diners of pufferfish know that the food's intoxicating tingle comes from tetrodotoxin, a potent neurotoxin that's deadly beyond small doses. North American garter snakes have evolved an amazing resistance to the lethal substance, which is found in one of their favorite meals, the California newt. USU biologist Butch Brody and his students are investigating the genetic basis for this example of coevolution. 
They're exploring the genetic basis of adaptation and the molecular processes that lead to evolutionary changes. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. We're talking with photographer James Baylog. In uh, 2005, uh, he was uh, he headed to the Arctic on an assignment from National Geographic, capture the images to tell the story of uh, Earth's changing uh, climate, and uh, that led to an ambitious project, the Extreme Ice Survey, where he uh, he thought and he actually did. I'll set up a bunch of cameras around the world. We'll uh, Photograph glaciers, and uh, and we'll witness the retreat of these these glaciers. It's it's happening uh, all over the world. Uh, he's going to talk about that tonight at an event on the USU campus. It's in Logan on the USU campus, the USU Kane Performance Hall, seven o'clock tonight, and that event is free and open to the, to the public. It's part of uh, USU's Year of Water. So let's uh, hear another clip from this film, Chasing Ice. This is uh, number three. You're no longer just a human being walking around in the regular world. You're a human animal striding around on the surface of a planet that's out in the middle of a galaxy. We as a culture, we're forgetting that we are actually natural organisms and that we have this very, very deep connection and contact with nature. You can't divorce civilization from nature. We totally depend on it. That is a clip from Chasing Ice, which chronicles James Baylog's Extreme Ice Survey. You're welcome to join the conversation. Hope that you will. We have another 10 minutes left in the conversation with James Baylog. And your question or comment is welcome at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. We have a caller, uh, Jeff in Logan. Jeff, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I'm going to ask the, the same cliche question that is asked at everything ever, but I listen to everything that is being said, and I, uh, I want to help. I want to do something. I want to be active. I want to be a part of the solution to help stop or prevent the problem, but I have no idea how to even begin. <laughs> and so I guess my question would be then, how, how, how does uh, just, you know, a normal guy that, that doesn't have connections to National Geographic or to some big organization. How do, how do I get involved enough that I can actually help make a change of any kind? That's a great question, and I'll address that tonight as well. But the, the basic answer uh, is to, you know, and this is also a cliche, um, <clears throat> You think globally, but you act locally, uh, and and there's that. That's a very very important truism. Um, to the extent that we have a healthy and functioning natural environment in the United States, it's because of local passions that were ignited in the 1960s that ultimately led to national protection for the environment, and in a similar fashion today city by city, county by county, state by state, a lot of change has been happening uh, around uh, protecting our air supply and, and reducing uh, carbon pollution, uh, having more efficient uh, 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 ways to use fuels to heat our homes and so forth. Um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I just read this the other day, I think there's 31 states that now have um, their own uh, climate change mitigation uh, uh, legislation. 
And it's important to do what you can locally to nudge the state system uh, here in Utah, but nudge, um, you know, here in, in town. You know, there's lots of things that can be done with any given house, any given choice of uh, uh, transportation uh, to make a difference. And, and these things can so often seem like, ah, oh, it's just me. It's just my own little something, nothing activity. But in fact, it counts. It's critical that piece by piece, you do what you can in your world. And there are groups here in town. I, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the group, but I heard about it last night at dinner. There was a meeting last night of uh, something called the Climate Action Network or some, some such title. I, I apologize for not knowing the name off the top of my head, but there are groups here in town uh, who are working on this and I would urge you to get involved. But all, you know, just at the level of boring little things like how much heat is getting wasted out of your house, you can go down to Home Depot and for a couple of bucks you can rent a camera for a couple hours and go do a heat survey of all the, the heat leaks in your house and you can pl- caulk those leaks and change window panes and stuff like that and make a difference. And that's really all you get when you go through your life and you look back at your life, all you get is the satisfaction of being able to look in the mirror and be able to say, I did what I could with my skills and my tools and my powers in my world. You know, even an Obama or a Vladimir Putin can't single-handedly change the world. All they can do is use the levers that they have, and I'm encouraging you to use the levers that you have. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that that question. Uh, the, you know, it's as Jeff said, it's it's cliched, but that's the bottom line, isn't it? That that's, is the that's the real line. question. Critical, what, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to get into the the climate change debate that's that's raging. It's in the film. There, you know, there's clips from uh, Rush Limbaugh, and Sean Hannity, and and others. In fact, there's there's one scene where you have your laptop computer and you're watching. I don't know. Somebody, you know, deny climate change and your your frustration levels is rising. Um, but where do you where is the lever there uh, in terms of, uh, you know, convincing those that aren't convinced? I, I, I find that it's actually fruitless to try and convince certain people with certain ideological um, uh, reflexes of this because they are they're locked in their ideology. Um the there's a there's a really serious problem in this debate about whether people are going to believe in something or are they going to look at the evidence uh even in my own work we used to talk about seeing is believing that somehow through seeing the glaciers you were going to believe in climate change or not believe in climate change and i've come to realize that just the basic idea of putting this subject out there in the world as a question of belief is flawed. This is not about belief. Belief is rightly something that is attached to things that have no concrete, tangible, physical, empirical evidence. Belief is like, for example, um, where did the earth come from? Why is humanity here in the middle of the galaxy floating around in outer space? Where are we going after we die? Those are questions that rightly belong to belief systems because there are no answers to them. There are no concrete answers. There are belief-driven answers, but that's all there is. The, on the other hand, changes in the, na- the Earth's natural system are real world. They're measurable. You can, you can see them. You can accumulate measurements of them. You can graph them. You can see them change through time. Those are concrete physical facts. That's evidence. That's evidence just as specifically as police collect when they go to check out what happened at a, at a particular scene. Um, so to me, climate change, what, what I say to people is come and see the evidence. I've spent... 20 years looking at layers and layers and layers of scientific evidence. And I bring my own specific photographic evidence to it, but my photographic evidence is founded on 
decades and decades of scientific collection of knowledge and the work of thousands of women and men all around the world looking at these different subjects. So the point is, don't come to our work or a scientist's work with your belief system. Check your belief system at the door and look at the evidence. And I, I think that if people look at the evidence, they go, geez, wow, this is really amazing. And I've had many people in, the, in my audiences come up to me after a show and say, geez, I thought this was just a lot of hooey. I thought this was like left liberal Al Gore talk, you know, about climate change, whatever. And I don't like, I don't like those kinds of people. So I, I disbelieved it. But your story, I understand that. I get that. In fact, I had that very reaction from a, a, a guy down at the University of Utah a few years ago, a guy who had laid oil and gas pipeline all across the American West. He came up to me afterwards, a very a tall, rangy guy in a denim jacket and a John Deere cap. And he said, young man, and not, not many people call me a young man anymore, <laughs> but said, young man, I, I, I really thought this was, uh, this was all a fiction, but now I, I hear your story and I see your evidence and I, and I get it. So mm. it's about the evidence. Mm. Now keep your eyes and your mind open to the evidence and, and it's hard to, hard to avoid an understanding. Just have a couple of minutes left. Um, uh, I wonder what your it's a guess is what's <clears throat> going to happen, right? Is enough action going to be taken? You know, what's what's going to happen? That uh, uh, this is uh, happening on a global scale. Um, what do you, what do you think? Is 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 your record photographic record going to be uh, you know sort of an obituary or? Or, or is something more positive going to happen? Well, I think it's a step on, on a path of, of uh, intellectual evolution of, of global society because it's, it's had a, the, the work has had a global uh, expression and a global uh, uh, ability to, uh, to change opinions. But the, the bigger question you're asking is, is society going to rise to the challenge or are we going to be so bogged down in our uh, status quo uh, historical behaviors that we won't be able to change enough, uh, fast enough. And of course, that's the, that's the trillion dollar question. Um, I, uh, there are days when I'm profoundly pessimistic. I see the political paralysis. You look at the fact that we've got 150 years of burning certain kinds of fuels and the, all the infrastructure that's built up with that, and it's hard to change that system. It's awfully difficult to change that system. On the positive side, there is clearly a growing, uh, there has been a rapidly growing understanding that uh, nature is speaking. People get that now, um, that things need to change. And there are great fortunes that are in the process of being made through making these technological changes, Elon Musk being the most prominent one of those. Uh, but uh, there's great new opportunities here, and there's a real need for this. And, and I think it's demonstrably clear that we're seeing the global um, perception of this changing. I mean, you couldn't have a better example of that than Pope Francis um, speaking about this quite uh, uh vehemently the past several months, including last week on the East Coast. Um, when you start having figures of that magnitude saying, hey, we've got to pay attention to this, things can and will change, I believe. We'll uh, end it there. We've been talking with James Baylog, who is a photographer. He's founder of the Extreme Ice Survey. That story is chronicled in the film Chasing Ice, which is available most, um, I don't it's most easily available, you were saying, on Netflix. Correct, yes. Um, and uh, James Bell will be showing some uh, uh, photographs and uh, lecturing uh, tonight, and that is free and open to the public. And that is uh, in the USU Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus, 7 o'clock this evening, and it's free and open to the public. One last thought, and this answers our friend Jeff, who was asking, and I'm sure other people have the same question. I think the short answer is, when what can I do? The answer is use your voice mm. and your voice in a, in a specific sense about telling the story, but your voice in terms of how you spend your money, how you spend your life, and you make a difference in your own world. We appreciate uh, uh, James Baylock being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. For, for Thank coming you. In.
Um, let's hear whatever time we have left here, uh, if any. Let's uh, hear uh, just a bit of uh, clip number four. This is from Chasing uh, Ice, and it's this large calving event, large, largest recorded uh, glacier recession. This is the size of Manhattan, a little bit of this. The calving face is 300, sometimes 400 feet tall. Pieces of ice were shooting up out of the ocean 600 feet and then falling. scale with human references is if you imagine Manhattan and all of a sudden all of those buildings just start to rumble and quake and peel off and just fall over and fall over and roll around. This whole massive city just breaking apart in front of your eyes. We're just observers, these two little dots on the side of the mountain. We watched and recorded the largest witness calving event ever caught on tape. So how big was this calving event that we just looked at? We'll resort to some illustrations again to give you a sense of scale. It's as if the entire lower tip of Manhattan broke off, except that the thickness, the height of it, is equivalent to buildings that are two and a half or three times higher than they are. That's a magical, miraculous, horrible, scary thing. I don't know that anybody's really seen the miracle and horror of that. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hope you'll uh, join me tomorrow. Uh, I'll be talking with... Uh, um, the writer David Quammen, who writes for the National Geographic, he's uh, gone to some cold places as well. He's uh, he's chronicled the uh, Great Transect in Africa, and he's coming out next year with um, uh, a an entire issue of National Geographic uh, chronicling Yellowstone National Park. Hope you join us then. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University. This is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. Up next, we have Radio Lab, and after which we have Here and Now. The time now is 10 o'clock.